Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 130, Scott Cast, part 7. Who were the Picts? This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Alexander, Peter, and Miles for joining up and becoming a part of the project. Now, if you're in the Facebook community or follow us on Twitter, you probably already know this, but we have a Hipster Hadrian t-shirt that's available until the 27th of July. That's right, you only have about a week until it goes away. And because I want everybody to be able to afford one, I'm not cashing in on this. So much like the stickers and the buttons, it's as cheap as I can make it. So it's only $12, and it looks pretty slick if you ask me. You can check it out over at teespring.com slash hipsterhadrian. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for this episode. All right, let's get on to the show. Now, the last time we had episodes focusing upon the Scott cast, it was at the end of season two, at the end of Roman Britannia. And since then, quite a lot has changed for our friends in the North. So, as is our custom, now that we're changing gears and focusing on a new era in the main story, let's break away from our Anglo-Saxon focus and check in with what's been happening outside of those territories. And let's start with an event that you might remember. That period following the withdrawal of Rome, when things got completely nutty for the Welshmen who were living in Gwyneth, and they were suffering heavily at the hands of raiders. Things really had just gone straight to hell for them. And in response, we're told that Cunetha, who probably came from around modern-day Stirling, led a warband 300 miles to the south and expelled the barbarians from the Welsh lands. A 300-mile march to fight for his neighbors. Best neighbor ever. Seriously, that does seem like he was going above and beyond the call of duty there, doesn't it? I mean, 300 miles for a foreign kingdom? That's a big deal. And you might be wondering, what was going on there, and why Cunetha would do such a thing? Assuming that this really did happen, and it wasn't all just legend. Well, consider what we've been talking about in the main podcast, and also what was occurring on the island in general. Sure, Britannia was tribal for quite a while, but there were clearly strong cultural connections that enabled them to unify to deal with external threats such as Rome. And once Rome had fully entrenched themselves on the island, large portions of Britannia experienced centuries of rule under a single government. To give you a sense of scale, Rome was in Britannia for nearly double the lifespan of the United States of America. I mean, that's a long time. So with that in mind, let's look at the story of Cunetha again. So we're being told of a 5th century war leader marching from far to the north, in order to eject barbarians from Welsh lands. If it was just friendly assistance of a neighbor, it might not make all that much sense. After all, Stirling is a long way from North Wales, so it's not like they are really neighbors of any sort. However, the picture might start to clear up if you consider the possibility that maybe Cunetha and the dynasty of Godolphin were looking to establish an empire. After all, it was clear that such a thing was possible, and Roman domination of England and Wales was still fresh in the minds of the people. So right there, right from the outset, 
we're starting to see hints that the people might have held ambitions that went far beyond individual kingdoms. And with that in mind, was this rescue a real rescue? I can't help but wonder if it was just a heroic justification for a conquest. I mean, once Cunetha arrived, it wasn't like he left. He stuck around and founded his own ruling dynasty in Gwyneth. Remember Maelgwyn? He was one of the kings that Gildas hated? Yeah, it looks like he was probably Cunetha's grandson. What sort of rescue involves supplanting the local dynasty and placing your own family on the throne of a kingdom that was far from your own home? Isn't that what people usually call a conquest? So, when we think about that story, there is that small wrinkle. But it is an interesting thought to begin this discussion on, isn't it? I mean, what exactly did the people beyond the wall think about the rest of Britannia? What were their goals and ambitions? And how did they relate to their neighbors now that Rome was gone? As we discussed at the end of the last Scott cast, we're now in the era where we're reading about the Picts. And everybody loves the Picts. How could we not? They're mysterious, and who doesn't love a good mystery? But they aren't entirely shrouded. And actually, from what we can glean, it seems like they fit in with this theme that Cunetha seems to have been pointing us towards. And thankfully, there are some things we can talk about as we try and piece together who they were. And hopefully, we'll get a fuller idea of what was going on in Britain during this era that we've been talking about. So to start with, we aren't entirely without sources. We have the Pictish Chronicle. However, it's so sparse that it makes the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle look like Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Essentially, the Pictish Chronicle is just a regnal list, peppered with occasional events. Additionally, the earliest copy of the Pictish Chronicle that we have is from the 10th century. And even for that one, all we have is a 14th century copy. And to make matters worse, there are multiple versions, and they don't all agree with each other. So, like with everything else, the information can't be assumed to be completely accurate, and we're just going to have to do our best. But it is better than nothing. We also have archaeology to turn to, including those enigmatic standing stones, as well as the impressions and accounts from foreign writers. And to be honest, there's actually quite a lot of interesting information to be discovered. And one of the first things that jumps out at you is their strength. We're talking about a warrior society, and one that wasn't pacified the way the Britons were by the Romans. Further, they were raiders and seafarers. We hear of Picts harrying Roman vessels as early as the 3rd century, and they were powerful enough to dominate the north, and based upon the evidence, it seems like the Picts had a sizable war fleet of well-built ships and were skilled navigators who were familiar with the whole coast of Scotland which is something that some have argued was probably not replicated again until the 16th century. These people were impressive, and were not the mindless savages that the Roman writers might have you believe. And a hint towards why they were able to be such a powerful and formidable group can be found in what was included, or more importantly, what was left out, of the written record. When we look at the records of this era, we see that there are two periods where the Pictish nation wasn't really unified. The first was around the middle of the 6th century, and then again it would happen for large parts of the 7th and 8th centuries. And the fact that the records call attention to these periods of disunity is very interesting. 
You might remember from the Roman episodes that the Romans tended to see the Picts as a single nation. And that wasn't particular to the Romans either. It looks like the British, Irish, and even the Anglo-Saxons seem to have similar impressions. And from the records, the Picts probably saw themselves the same way as well. And it makes you wonder how that all came about. I mean, in the early Roman era, we definitely saw evidence of a variety of tribes rather than a single nation. But they also did unify on occasion, didn't they? For example, in the Battle of Mons Graupius, a massive united Caledonian army fought against Agricola. And actually, when Tacitus wrote about that period, he didn't mention any of the tribes that were written about by Ptolemy a few hundred years earlier. In fact, he generally just referred to the people as the, quote, tribes of Caledonia, end quote. And then, about a hundred years later, Dio tells us about a fight between the Romans and the people of what would become Scotland, and this time we're told that the tribes of Caledonia had merged into two groups, the Caledonians and the Maete. What exactly happened there isn't recorded, but now, rather than having a wide variety of tribes, there's just two kingdoms. That is a big shift in a hundred years. And then about a hundred years after that, during the time of Emperor Constantius, we're told of the people beyond the wall simply as the Picts, or the Caledonians and other Picts. And then about 60 years later, we're again told about how the Picts were divided into two peoples. But in general, references to the Picts tended to speak of them as a single group. Now, this could be just general Roman prejudice, and they weren't seeing the complexities of life beyond the wall. Or it could be the first inklings of what would later be hinted at in the Pictish Chronicle and elsewhere. Namely, that the seeds were planted for a unified Pictish kingdom. And here's the really strange thing about this. The records during the Roman period, and then the later records, do seem to imply a general merging of tribes into large kingdoms, and finally into a single unified kingdom. And it looks like they did that long before Wales or England managed to accomplish the same feat. And while we do see references to different tribes, and some king lists mention seven provinces, we also see references to an overking ruling over it all. And that implies a sort of unification. So, the question is raised. How did they do it? I mean, we've spoken about how geographical boundaries could create significant issues with creating a unified kingdom. Transportation, cultural connection, and all manner of other issues come up when you have a tough, rugged terrain. And Pictland was definitely that. And more than that, it looks like in its pre-Roman days, they were dealing with many of the same issues of infighting that the southern British were dealing with. So what made the Picts able to move beyond that fractured past and unify, assuming that the records are correct and their implication can be trusted? Well, that is a great question, and it's one of the many mysteries of the Picts. But consider what an enormous difference in culture there was between the Britons and the Picts following the withdrawal of Rome. The Britons, even before the era of the Anglo-Saxons, were largely a divided people with many kingdoms, or perhaps not even kingdoms at first, but just loosely organized communities or tribes. After all, not even Ambrosius Aurelianus, the man who united the Britons to fight against the Anglo-Saxons, was titled King. And Gildas tells us of a shattered island with a variety of kingdoms in the West. 
and we have spent dozens of episodes discussing the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that formed in the East. Unity certainly was not the norm in the South. But up in the North, in Pictland, we see evidence of the beginnings of the formation of a Pictish nation within 200 years of the first Roman invasion. And it looks like they kept growing until they unified the region. So that's the first thing about the Picts that jumped out at me when I was looking at the records. Something else that's pretty interesting is how they handled royalty. After all, when it comes to kingdoms and handling matters of unification, you typically need to discuss how you're going to handle ruling it all, right? And those matters get even more complex when you start absorbing other groups into your kingdom. And so a common solution, and one that we saw in the South, was the formation of essentially hegemonies, or empires. And that's sort of what the idea of a Bretwalda was. Basically, the king of kings, where you have a high king, and then you have under kings. And that played out not just with the hegemonies of Mercia, Northumbria, and elsewhere, but also in individual kingdoms like Kent, where you had two kings, with one serving underneath the other. It's actually a pretty slick solution, because it allows tribes and smaller kingdoms to still feel like they're maintaining their identity, all while bringing the groups together into a larger nation. And that does seem to be what the Picts were doing. And it was pretty clever, because while over-kings would have been powerful and ambitious men, they also needed to find a way to extend their power over vast swaths of territory that really weren't easy to cross. By delegating to underkings, they were essentially doing what modern leaders do by having administrators, staffers, and all manner of other officials. They were delegating to ensure that even though they can't actually be everywhere, they still were, sort of, everywhere. But even though they solved the issue of getting everyone organized, they still needed to handle the issue of what to do when the overking dies. They needed to handle succession. Now, the most common form in Eastern Britannia was agnatic primogeniture. I know that sounds really complicated, but it's just a fancy way of saying all the major goodies go to the firstborn son. Allowing a single individual to inherit the top position allowed that political organization a greater chance to survive. And by having it always go to the firstborn son, it prevented a lot of uncertainty and power struggles because the line of succession was very clearly laid out. It was a good solution overall. Obviously, there are exceptions, and there are usurpations and general messiness when you deal with things like underkings. And Mercia was a whole different can of worms. But in general, in the lands that would become England, that's how it was handled. And it helped the region unify over time. But obviously, it does come with its own drawbacks. You run the risk of child kings, incompetent or brutal kings, and a variety of familial tension between brothers and such. But overall it's a decent way to solve the problem. Another solution to succession is Gavelkind, which is sort of like an empire in reverse. For example, if you're a powerful leader, if you're really good at your job and you brought a whole bunch of territories under your control, you might feel really good about the job you did, and you probably should, but once you died, the land and titles that you acquired would all get handed out to your eligible offspring, which in general meant your sons. So instead of growing your kingdom's power, it was dispersed. And that was what was practiced in Wales. And it really hamstrung them. But what was going on in Pictland? 
Well, scholars have looked at the evidence, including comments made by Bede, and surmised that the Picts had individual kings ruling over tribal groups, but they also selected an overking, a king of the Picts. So they sort of had a hegemony, roughly like what Northumbria, Mercia, and others seem to be trying to attain. And like I said, having an overking and then delegating to lesser kings really was a sensible solution to the issue. And that goes doubly for Pictland because of how rough the terrain can be. But it is kind of interesting that they selected their overking, isn't it? I imagine it must have been something along the lines of consensus. At least that's what's implied. And so instead of having it flow from father to son, for example, it seems to have been more along the lines of an election, and that the king with the most support from, presumably other kings, would then become the overking, the king of the Picts. And while that does create the possibility of civil war, if there is no clear favorite during the election, overall, it does seem like it would prevent a lot of strife and keep things from fragmenting, since only leaders who had the support of a variety of kings could end up at the top of the pack. And perhaps that's part of what enabled the Picts to unify so much earlier than their English and Welsh counterparts. Something else the Picts did that was unique was it looks like they chose their leaders from the matrilineal royal line meaning that they traced their royal line through the female side, even though most of their leaders were men. Now that does create a bit of confusion, right? Since you have a bunch of men tying themselves to a female royal line rather than just having the women rule. But that aside, tracing descent through the female line is sort of a stroke of genius. And here's why. Hopefully this won't come as a shock to you. But sometimes leaders cheat. And it's not just at Berlusconi's bunga bunga parties either. Moreover, it isn't just men who cheat. Women do too. Now, not everyone cheats, so you can stop glaring at your partner. But it is something that happens. And without adequate contraception, that cheating runs the risk of pregnancy. Hell, some guys are out there practically setting up franchises. And that possibility is a problem if you're someone who believes that there's something that makes the royal line special. And that is sort of the idea behind blue blood, right? The idea is that there's something in them and their line that makes them different from the rest of us. And if you're really concerned about that, you probably don't want someone without that special blood sitting on the throne. But how do you prevent that? Well, monogamy with strict punishments for straying is one way, but that won't necessarily stop it from happening. A simpler solution is to trace the bloodline through the women. If the male carries the magic blood, then there's the possibility that his partner can carry another man's child, and then the throne would lose its magical qualities, right? But if it's the woman who carries the magic blood, then you're guaranteed that, unless there was some pretty impressive sleight of hand and she was presented with a completely different baby moments after giving birth, her offspring will carry that blood. And thus, the throne stays magical. So yeah, tracing the royal blood through the female side definitely had its advantages. And some argue that this was from an ancient tradition dating back, possibly, to the pre-Celtic Bronze Age. Others say that this practice found its roots in Pictish sexual behaviors, since Dio says the Picts essentially rejected monogamy, and the women were, quote, possessed in common, end quote, and that they raised their kids as a group. So, some people have argued that matrilineal lines were just a simple way of establishing who was actually on that line. It's something we might never know for sure. 
Now, looking at the regnal lists, it becomes clear that this wasn't a simple line of succession. What I mean is that the throne didn't automatically pass from father to son, even if they could trace their line through the female royal bloodline. And actually, we can't tell exactly how things were traced for many of the rulers, since the names of rulers were typically mentioned as such-and-such, son-of-such-and-such. So yeah, despite the female-based dynasty, they were still focused upon the men, and they were specifically focused upon fatherhood. It's silly, but there you have it. And so while we can be pretty sure that the kings were part of the female royal line, it's hard to always say exactly how they fit in there. We do know that about a quarter of the kings listed in the regnal lists were succeeded by their brothers. But as for the rest, were they cousins, uncles, nephews? It's hard to say. But it does give us another window into another advantage that the Pictish nation had. Because by having what essentially looks like an electoral system on the matrilineal line, they had a wide range of possible relatives to succeed the throne. So the chances that you would have a young, infirm, or otherwise undesirable family member succeeding to the throne would diminish. So overall, it wasn't a terrible plan. And here's how heavily focused they were upon the female line. Despite the naming conventions, we only know of two fathers of Pictish kings that we can actually be sure existed. There is a third, but his story lacks supporting evidence, and so it might just be legend. So yeah, just the two that we can rely upon. And the first is going to sound familiar to you. Ainfrith, son of Aethelfrith. Yeah, that same Ainfrith who thought he could negotiate peace with Cadwathlin for a kingdom that he didn't possess? Well, while he was in exile, he married a Pictish princess, and his son, Talorgan, became the king of the Picts, and he ruled for four years. The other father that we know of was Beli, who was the father of the great Pictish king Brude, and that king kicked a lot of butt, but we haven't reached his era yet, so I'll hold on to that information. So that's it, just the two fathers. But we can assume that the selection of partners for Pictish princesses was taken quite seriously, and that there would have been many high-status suitors. Unmarried kings and princes from other Pictish tribes, as well as from outside kingdoms like Northumbria, all would have been vying for their attention. And that actually would go a long way in promoting stability, since it would tie the tribes together. And due to the nature of succession, there wasn't any particular princess who was more likely to give birth to a king than any other. So all in all, it had a binding effect. So to sum up, despite the biases we might carry, while things were fragmented in the south, what we're seeing in the north is the development of a unified territory. And that seems to have been accomplished through the establishment of an electoral hegemony, which was headed up by kings who traced their royal lineage through the female line. And it's a unique solution to the issue of rule, but it seems to have been quite successful for the Picts for quite a long time. And next time, we'll talk a bit more about what we can glean from the history of Scotland during this period. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything, really. And you can find links to all of it at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening.